This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat. Did you know that in the United States, more and more students are dropping out of high school every year than ever before? And teachers and other adults are just unsure about how to help these struggling students. And unfortunately, not graduating from high school puts kids on a path towards economic struggles that can last them an entire lifetime. Okay, that's enough with the bad news. Now, the good news is that the latest research shows that brains can change at any age and that teachers and adults and any other kind of educators have the power to boost students' efforts and focus and attitude and even their IQs. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with one of the country's leading education experts, Eric Jensen. And Eric's mission is to come up with teacher-friendly and parent-friendly strategies that ensure that all students can graduate from high school and become lifelong learners and ultimately be successful in school and in life. He's going to tell us about some practical, classroom-tested and research-supported strategies that will empower us as parents and teachers and educators to make lasting and rapid changes in the way that we interact with teens. So if you've got a teenager who's struggling in school or you think you might have one sometime soon, you're not going to want to miss any of this show. We'll start our discussion about how to help underperforming students become lifelong learners when positive parenting for military families continues right after this. Check it out. It's the Terminator. Hey, when'd you get back, huh? Did you have to shoot anyone? Why are you so distant? Are you not happy to see me? So what's the deal? You gonna get a job now or what? Why are you being so jumpy? Put all that stuff behind you, okay? No one knows what it's like to come back from Iraq or Afghanistan unless they were there. Join other veterans at communityofveterans.org because we know where you're coming from. Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt, and my guest for this part of today's show is Eric Jensen, who's the co-author with Carol Snyder of Turnaround Tools for the Teenage Brain, Helping Underperforming Students Become Lifelong Learners. Eric, thanks very much for joining us. My pleasure. How do you define an underperforming student? Is that necessarily somebody who's getting bad grades? Is it somebody who's getting bad grades, but you know that they could do better? I think uh, underperforming could be a kid that's getting decent grades, but uh, the parents suspect that there's a lot more there that could be happening. Um, I also use expressions of underperforming learners because it's a lot more uh, politically correct than saying things like uh, maybe they've had two years in a row of underperforming teachers and they're turned off to school too. So. You know, sometimes things get blamed on kids that, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, they were put into circumstances that they didn't choose, uh, as in school, they got to go to school because it's the law, and, you know, and they struggle with the, it's not a good fit for them. Well, how do you figure that out as a parent, then? I mean, it seems like a pretty crucial decision to have to make if if the problem is with your child as opposed to the problem being with the school. Well... You know, for 
for a secondary student, meaning obviously 6th through 12th grade and higher, one question to ask is, is, this, is your son or daughter doing well in one class but not in another? When students will tell you that, oh, I really like this teacher and, you know, I'm excited about what's going on. Generally, when kids like their teacher and they like how things are presented, they work harder. They have a better attitude. And at the same school, they could have a different teacher that they don't like. So I think one way to understand this is that there's way more variation among teachers at any individual school than most parents realize. In other words, most parents want to pick a good school for their kids. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that, that when you have a school that's got 30 teachers that's elementary or maybe 60 or to 100 teachers at a secondary school, you're going to have a lot of variation in competencies of teachers. So it's more important that teachers work with their son or daughter to find the right teacher than it is to worry about the right school. Although there are obviously schools that are, you know, that are safer for kids and ones that have a better track record, the teacher matters the most and the way you can tell is how hard is your son or daughter willing to work for that teacher. Hmm. Oh, that's a great way to look at it, yeah. Is there a way, though, for the probably 90% of parents who are just, they're going to send their kid to whatever the neighborhood school is, and they're going to just go with the luck of the draw with whichever fifth grade teacher they get? Well, I think it's, if your son or daughter struggling in school, I think a, a key piece is early on, like don't wait till halfway through the school year. Early on, that means right now we're, you know, when we're talking, it's the month of October. Early on in the school year is great. Talk to the the uh, the teacher, and if you don't get the the feeling from that teacher that the teacher is one of those roll up their sleeves and do whatever it takes to help your son or daughter succeed, if you don't get that feeling, schedule a brief talk with the principal. And when you sit with the principal, don't go in with guns blazing. Just go into the principal and say, you know, there's just we might not have a good fit here with my son or daughter. Talk to me about some other choices at your school. And the big thing is, is that if if you as a parent are not going to be an advocate for your kids, who is? Like you have to be, you know, a stand-up person yeah. that says I'm going to find the best teachers I can. The differences between what what we see at schools that are among teachers that would be labeled low-performing teachers, these are teachers that typically, over the course of an entire school year, and I'm talking if the student was in elementary year, elementary school, or if they had two semesters at, at a secondary school, over the course, that teacher will typically get half the progress with a kid. That is what compared to what we'd call an average teacher, which would get a full year's worth of progress. Now, the reason this is important for parents is simple. If your son or daughter started, whether it's fifth grade or seventh grade, third grade, you name it, if they start that grade and they're already a little bit behind where their peers are, they have to have, I mean, this isn't an option, they have to have a teacher that is an above average teacher the next year in order to catch up. Right. Another year of average won't cut it. There are actually teachers at some schools 
that, and I researched this for my dissertation, there are teachers at some schools that are literally getting two and three years worth of progress with their kids in one single calendar school year. I mean, it's it blows you away at how good some teachers are. The question is, how do you find those? And sometimes it just takes a really frank discussion with the principal. And well, the, say, the bigger question is, how do you hire more of those, and how do you train more of those, I think. I mean, it just seems you're painting a, a, a positive picture, but in, in some ways a dismal one also, that there it's the, the chances of success or finding a teacher like that don't seem terribly high. They actually are not very high, and this is why it's so rare to find schools that you, and I've worked with schools at the bottom and the top end. I mean, when I say bottom and top, I mean schools that that every single year they their students, on average, will move a year and a half for every year they're in school. On average, that's what the schools do. And there are schools out there like that. But, and also schools that will do the reverse, meaning kids actually get worse every year they go to school. So you asked the big picture question, which is how do we get more of them? Uh, I've thought about that a lot because my job is actually working with underperforming schools, and I write a lot for teachers about this. It's not an easy problem to solve, and the short answer is that at every single piece of the, of the if you want to call it the, the puzzle, or every single step along the way, there are gaps that prevent us from having you know, schools with just amazing teachers that are just chock-a-block with them. Part of it is is that people have become accustomed to mediocrity. Part of it can be teacher unions that are afraid of accountability. Part of it can be that there's no national discussion about it. It's either point fingers and blame. Part of it is there's not a culture. Part of it is that schools of education bring in people whose qualifications are often pretty marginal, like they couldn't think of what else to do, and they say, oh, I think I'll become a teacher. Yeah. You know, and part of it is at schools themselves, principals are being asked to do more and more and more in their job compared to five years ago and ten years ago, just like teachers are. Sure. And for many principals, the job is overwhelming to try to coach teachers. Right. And even when they look at the data and they say, this teacher is, you know, their weak spot is in reading, even when they know that. Right. Eric, so... It's not an easy solution is what I'm saying. And I'm saying as a parent, you have to say, how do I I mitigate this problem? So I've got a kind of another question for you. I mean, how looking, we all know you, you get online and you can check out the the API scores, the various standardized scores for, for schools. How do you find, is there a tool out there someplace where you can actually say, okay, the school that I'm considering sending my child to is one that, achieves a year and a half worth of educational results in a year. What what number are we looking for? Where are we going to find that information? Well, the test scores are just one of the ways, and almost every public school in the United States is listed in one of the two or three major directories that you can go to. Um, and that's one way to do it is to look up the how is the school doing in terms of the standardized test scores. Now, you and I know and that what those are, those are only one path. Yeah, where, where are those directories? Um, those would be, like, there's a site called greatschools.org, um, and when you click on that and you type in the your area code or you type in the name of the school in the state, 
there is a toolbar which you can go to which will let you click on test scores. So that's one place where you can find it is simply looking for an online directory that will help you um, locate those types of schools. Um, I think, I, but I, I think another thing is you, you have to remember it's, as I said earlier, there's more variation within a school than there is from school to school. So worry less about where do I move my kid to and more about how do I help them get the best teacher that I can every year at school. And that's a more important conversation. You can hold that conversation with a principal to say, what you say to the principal is you say, you know, I really want to keep my my son in your school, and um, I know that you have access to the data on how each of your teachers is doing. And what I'm most interested in is finding for my son the teacher that is uh, that last year really was an all-star. Can you steer me in that direction? Eric Jensen is the co-author of Turnaround Tools for the Teenage Brain, helping underperforming students become lifelong learners. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Eric. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brock. We're continuing our discussion with Eric Jensen, in case you happen to be joining us now. Turnaround Tools for the Teenage Brain is his book, and the subtitle is Helping Underperforming Students Become Lifelong Learners. So we've talked about now kind of the side of the issue that could be on the teacher's end of things. Now let's take a look at what's going on with the students. So you've got a child who probably like like me, I suppose, where the the parents always were hearing, oh, he's got such potential but never does anything. Um, how do you work with a child like that to get them to understand the need to focus, the need to, to put in the work? I mean, you said something very interesting before about the part, a way to measure it is how much work is a child willing to put in for a teacher. How do you get them to understand that you get out of it what you put in sometimes? It's it's a tough role as a parent, but I think the very first mindset to have as a parent is that you're going to be the first line of offense to help build your son or daughter into a an all-star a student. And you can't outsource parenting. I know people try to do that, but you can't outsource it. You have to be the one that does that. Second, you have to understand that the that very that that how we turn out, how kids turn out, only a portion of it is genetic. And just because someone thinks, well, so-and-so's got a really bright dad or bright mom, you know, that's how they're turning out. Actually, genes only contribute probably 30 or 40% of how we turn out. So I'm saying to parents, this is important as a parent, roll up your sleeves and don't start thinking genes, start thinking, what can I do? So you've got only about four or five territories that you can, if you want to say, uh, go after. Like one of them is, how do I go after effort? You know, one way you go after effort is you make sure you affirm the effort that you like to see and you don't complain very much about what you don't like. 
the second thing about effort is as a parent, you have to be really specific so your kids understand what is it that you actually, that actually will move them forward in life. A lot of parents will say, oh, that was good. You did a good job on that. You know, you got to cut that out. What we know about effort is that unless you tell them what they did that was good, they won't know it. That means I liked how you stuck with that over time. That showed me a lot of grit and perseverance. That's going to get you pretty far. I know you're thinking of doing such and such when you get older. That's actually what's going to help you get there. In other words, it's not just being specific when you compliment your son or daughter, but it's more importantly, it's you have to make the cognitive link because kids never make that link. It's not like when kids do their chores and you say, hey, good job on your chores, that they're going to go, oh, great, that means I'll probably get a raise in 10 years when I'm out in the work world. It doesn't. Kids don't think like that. And so the link that they're not getting is between whatever it is that they're doing or not doing and what they want to do with their plans. lives. Yeah. And if, if you, let's say you had a son that you knew was saving up money for a car, and let's say you've got an allowance that's based on uh, effort around the house and the yard, which is what I just personally happen to recommend. I don't give kids anything, everything they earn, even if the way they earn it is they just help out with simple things around the house. They need to see that you aren't entitled to anything in life. What, you're in, what you can do is to earn your way through life. So let's say your, your son has been exceptionally awesome at getting chores done on time, or they get what they do is good quality. Say, you know what? That attitude you have of getting it right, that's going to help you be able to make more money in the short term, and it's going to help you get that car that you're saving for. And the kid goes, wow, like (laughs) I never thought of that. You know, you get this Scooby-Doo expression. Kids don't connect stuff, but adults do. And adults have to make sure that they connect it and in a good way, not, you know, gripe about it when they don't do it. So you asked what parents can do. I said one is you can you go after effort by affirming what they do well. Secondly, you do that specifically. And the third part of it is you connect the dots for them so they'll know where is all this effort going to take them. Right. Okay. Right. I want to get back to a couple things that you mentioned. One of them was that genes are maybe only 30 to 40 percent of determining what happens in your life. So there's the, the nature versus nurture. So the the nurture part of it is the other 60 to 70%. How do you build that? You've got a chapter on building cognitive capacity. What's the process there? The, the, the cognitive capacity in kids is a core piece that in the ideal world, they would either get some pieces of it when they're very, very young, everything from childhood games. I mean, even things like, you know, hopscotch and marbles and, you know, all these games that kids used to play, um, whether it's checkers or board games or cards, all of those can build cognitive capacity. But let's say kids don't get those, which is actually pretty common. When they go to school, are their teachers teachers teaching them what to learn or how to learn? Most teachers don't teach very well how to learn. They just say, oh, well, this kid's not very interested. Well, what happens with a lot of students is if you don't know, for example, a simple, clean process for study, that you do this first and this second and third and then fourth and all that, kids pretty much aren't going to get it taught at school. So here's what parents need to do. They need to post up in their 
in their uh, kids' rooms simple things like, here are five steps to study. Number one, locate the assignment. Number two, figure out your objectives. What's your end product you want to end up? Third, skim your, your materials. Just browse through them. Number three, you know, chunk down your task. Number four, take notes. You know what I'm saying? Like sure. if you don't list that for kids, the odds are they won't get it. So one is to help your students be organized by helping them have the assistance of a list so that over time that becomes completely memorized. Second thing is skill building. All of the skills that you see kids with that are so-called smart, those can be taught. Yeah. And I like websites like, for example, junglememory.com if your kids are younger and uh, lumosity.com if your kids are in secondary level. JungleMemory.com is perfect for kids at the elementary age because it teaches attentional skills and working memory skills. These are fundamental, along with reasoning and processing skills, fundamental for school success. Um, you can purchase the product online for something like 20 bucks, and I don't make, get anything for recommending these because I only recommend ones that have really good science behind them. Right. And for secondary kids, I'd recommend their parents get uh, Lumosity, L-U-M-O-S-I-T-Y. And these are the sites that will build cognitive skills that the teachers mm. won't do. Why? Because these skills require such uh, rigor, and they have to follow real specific rules or your brain won't change. Like you, if you want your kid's brain to change, there's very little you can do to change their brain without having discipline and rigor to it. And those are the things kids don't like very much. Right. So I want to skip ahead a little bit because we were talking in the very beginning about what a, an underperforming student is and kind of looking at it from the, the point of view of the child who needs to develop something. Part of the reason why a lot of kids are underperforming is that they're just bored out of their minds, and they are actually quite gifted or brilliant or something along the lines of above average, and they aren't getting directed in the right place. How do you deal with a child like that? I mean, of course, you're going to have to be talking to the school about, listen, let's get him into a higher math class or something, but at home, what are you doing to, to nurture that and to encourage the exceptional brain power that's already there? it's really important for parents to have what I call gaudy goals for their kids. When I use the phrase gaudy goals, what I really mean is that goals that are so outrageous that it gives the kid something amazing to dream about. And these are goals that you work in partnership with a son or daughter on. And primarily the reason you're doing this is because mostly school gives kids boring goals like we're going to learn algebra, we're going to learn wet, you know, weather, meteorology, or whatever. And these are goals that are that the school wants you to learn because they may be part of the Common Core State Standards, but they're goals that most kids have unless your lifelong goal is to become a meteorologist, in which case that's different. So the important thing for parents is to say school tries to give kids middle-sized goals. What you do with your own kids is you give help work with them to develop a gaudy goal, like I'm going to change the world with a way to do such and such when I get older. And you work to help them get their gaudy goals with micro goals, which are something they can do in one hour or less. So, for example, if my gaudy goal was I want to invent software to do XYD, XYZ, what can I work with my son with? 
in an hour or less that would move them towards his gaudy goal. That's what psychs up kids. So you can you will get an amazing amount of effort when you talk up and let kids keep describing and animating and creating a narration about their dream. Teachers don't do this for the most part, but when parents do this, they get kids so psyched up, and then you say, all right, today, let's move closer to our dream. And, you know, the what, what can we do in one hour? Eric Jensen is the author, co-author of Turnaround Tools for the Teenage Brain, Helping Underperforming Students Become Lifelong Learners. Eric, thanks for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show on AFN. I'm Armin Brunt. What do you think about when you hear the phrase, only child? For a lot of us, I think the common perception is that only children are lonely or selfish or maladjusted even. And their parents, especially their moms, are routinely labeled as selfish too for daring to deprive their children of the alleged benefits of siblings while putting career or economic self-interest ahead of their single child's well-being. That's a pretty heavy burden. However, according to Lauren Sandler, who's my guest for this part of today's show, the self-perpetuating myths about only children and their parents are simply not true. The reality is that a lot of only children are doing just fine, thank you very much, and having siblings is not always what it's cracked up to be. As an only child herself, and as the mother of one, Sandler took a look at her own experience and the experience of a lot of other people, and she sifted through the often conflicting information and research about the state of onlys. She was looking at both the personal conflicts and the larger cultural politics. What she discovered was that the myths about only children are rarely backed up by facts, and a lot of the drawbacks associated with being an only child are imposed from the outside, not from the inside. We'll be talking with Lauren Sandler about only children, the advantages, the disadvantages, and the rise of single families and what that means for our economies, our environment, and our freedom. We'll jump into all that and a lot more when Positive Parenting continues right after this. There once was a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dinky Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Well, I'm taking Algebra 2 in a foreign language. Oh, so you can talk to unicorns? Uh, exactly. Unless they're French. Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find the classes he really needed. Getting into college doesn't happen magically. Learn more at knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Lauren Sandler, who's the author of One and Only, The Freedom of Having an Only Child and the Joy of Being One. Lauren, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So you must be taking a lot of gruff. I'm trying to find a way of saying something that's that's uh, publishable on the air. Heat, flack. Heat, that's you it. You name it. But Crap. yes, the word that starts with S certainly comes to mind. <laughs> So, I mean, because it is, it is a kind of a contrary position, although it's interesting. I, I spent a lot of time looking at research on pretty much everything, but it, the, there's waves of research. Once there's a wave that says that you have to have several children because otherwise they won't be socialized properly, 
And then you have another wave that comes a few years later saying, oh, single children or singletons are, are perfectly fine. They're perfectly well-adjusted and just leave them alone. And so obviously you are, are on the single kids are fine end of the scale. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm pretty much on the everything is fine end of the scale as long as parents are fine and kids are fine. I mean, I think that we think that there are these absolute answers that are going to, you know, be some holy grail solution to our our questions about parenting. And I think that if we just know ourselves and we know our kids, that we pretty much have the answer right there. But there's this notion that there are right answers. Um, and frankly, there's been a notion for since human history has begun that only children are a wrong answer. And I wanted to investigate that and see where it was true and where it wasn't. And certainly the data really does line up very much in favor of only children as a really viable hmm. way of raising kids. Uh, only but children seems... really don't seem to be that different than anyone else, and yet we tell ourselves the story that they are. Um, well, it seems is... to be kind of contrary to the laws of nature, at least as mothers and mothers-in-law would define it. The, you know, the question of, well, when are you going to have another one? Sure, Seems to just I mean, be something I, that's I'm sure you can imagine. I hear that question all the time. I um, can't imagine having three, but I, I mean, I, I, no, I, I can imagine in theory, yeah. It's, uh, and well, what do you, what do you say? We can all imagine What it. do you it's say that? It's a question of what, what, we, you know, what we want to imagine, what we want our lives to actually look like. And yeah. I think that we're asking some fairly radical questions about that for the first time in human history. If you think back on how many, you know, eons we're talking about here, and then you think about how relatively recent it is to actually make a choice about what your family size looks like. Well, um, and I think we're not quite comfortable with that yet. Now, let's take a step back a little bit. And you said you were doing a lot of research on this, and, and clearly from reading the book, it's, uh, you certainly have. Let's talk a little bit about some of the differences in the research and also some of the advantages that, that uh, only kids have. Sure. So are there advantages? Oh, there are certainly advantages that show in the data. So this is the thing. I'm not a psychologist, and I don't do research studies myself. I'm a journalist, and I wanted to set out and investigate this, both looking at the studies and then also looking at how some of these issues show up in the lived experience, because that's another part of what I do as a journalist is I interview people about how they feel and what their lives are like, and I go and observe things. And so I wanted to see how those things lined up. So Within the data, you know, the data shows us that only children are not measurably different from anyone else, except in a few areas which tend to be positive. They tend to be higher achievers. They tend to have higher self-esteem. They tend to do better on intelligence tests. Um, they tend to have greater confidence. So there are things that you would think, oh, parents want those things, so this should be an asset. Um, they, contrary to popular opinion, are not lonelier, do not have a harder time making friends, and do not tend to be more selfish. And so you kind of have to wonder what all of that bad feeling about only children is rooted in. So the data is very, very positive, but that does not mean that everyone loves being an only child, nor that, you know, that that's sort of the key to positive parenting, um, which I think tends to be a much larger spectrum, which is based on a lot of individual factors. One of my frustrations in looking at research, and I'm imagining it may be one of your frustrations as well, is quite often you'll find a study that shows something, but they don't ever seem to ask why. And I'm curious about why would 
only kids do better on IQ tests, or or why would they have better self-esteem? Do you have any kind of sense of that? Well, I do, if only because, you know, I've looked at so many hundreds of studies that look at things so narrowly. Of course, academics tend to only focus on the most narrow terms possible, and as you say, aren't really comfortable questioning outside of that. But, you know, in addition to looking at IQ tests, there are people who, this may sound crazy, but have literally studied the number of words that are spoken to each child in a family. Um, and there are twice as many words that tend to be spoken to an only child directly as to, um, you know, as a kid with one sibling. And that degree of rich verbal interaction tends to raise IQ. There is a relationship between the solitude, which I do not equate with loneliness, that an only child tends to have that, you know, gets them to read more. Most of us tend to be bookworms. I'm an only child myself, and I know I spent so much of my life talking or buried in a book. If I was with someone, I was talking. If I wasn't, I was reading. And that certainly tends to um, encourage that way of learning and also lots of other sort of related focused pursuits around math skills and that sort of thing. So there are very narrow things that people have understood to try to under, um, try to really figure out why it is that only children tend to do better. They also, frankly, have more parental attention. And so that can be as direct as homework help, or that can just sort of lead to a lot of different ways of feeling like you can do things. Um, So that tends to help a lot. In terms of self-esteem, I think that these things are really related. I think that that attention leads to confidence. I think that having a lot of verbal aptitude um, tends to lead to confidence. But, you know, there are certainly a zillion insecure-only children the question is whether they are more insecure than anyone else. And I think that that's worth bringing up because when you're an only child, issues like insecurity are explained by the fact that you didn't have siblings. Now, if you are one who has a sibling and you're insecure, then these things get explained in a different way. If, if you take the normative track you know, for example, having siblings, no one is going to explain you in terms of those things. If, if something is exceptional about you, though, like let's say you have gay parents or your mother died when you were very young or, you know, or you're overweight or, you know, these things that tend to be the totalizing narratives of our lives begin to explain all of us. And so the issues of confidence when they don't show up can be explained because you didn't have siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, And then when they do, it can be because you didn't. And the fact is that all these different factors come into play to make us who we are. And to make too much of any one thing, I think, can be a little problematic. Did you happen to have come across any data that showed that that being an only child or having an only child is kind of a hereditary thing? And I don't mean in a genetic sense, but that people who are only children are more likely to have only children or people who who come from families of 17 are more likely to have only children. Or is there any kind of connection there at all? People who have only children are very likely to have only children unless they hated it. (laughs) And then they're likely (laughs) to have no kids or have more. And there are people who hate it. But there are a ton of people who, like myself, thought, hey, that worked for me and I can see how that's going to work for my kid and, frankly, how that will work for me as a parent. Um, Because we, we have the model of that sort of childhood. We also, I think, have the model of what it means as a parent to have only one kid. And that was a lot of it for me. You know, 
it's not so much that I necessarily want to, in a calculated way, give my daughter the benefits of only childhood, though I'm happy for her to have that. If anything, I really wonder what she would gain from having a sibling, and I, because that's unfamiliar to me. So I think about that all the time. Um, I wouldn't say I obsess about it, but certainly it's a it's a it's a manner of of personal investigation I discuss with my husband a lot. Um, but I also know what it was like to have a mother who wasn't mothering all the time and who could devote herself to her work and, frankly, to having a happy marriage with my father. And that was a wonderful thing to be raised by and to having yeah. adult friendships and traveling and living in an interesting city, you know, all these things that really modeled an adulthood for me that felt aspirational. Um, and for me, having another child would radically change that. So I learned both what it means to be a parent of one and what it means to be one myself. And they both seem to make sense in my own life. Lauren Sandler is the author of One and Only, The Freedom of Having an Only Child and the Joy of Being One. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Lauren. Sassy! Today's episode, Bobcat in the Cave. Oh, nuts! There's a bobcat in this cave! Save us, Sassy! <laughs> you will, but first you'd like to stress the importance of cat adoption? <laughs> Over 5 million cats go into animal shelters every year and they need to be adopted? Help us, Sassy! Why bother? We'll just get into more trouble tomorrow? Sassy is brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Remember, adopt. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, we're continuing our discussion with Lauren Sandler, who's the author of One and Only, The Freedom of Having an Only Child and the Joy of Being One. Now, you mentioned something that you talk to your husband a lot about, and I'm just kind of wondering, hearing that, that particular phrase, whether also in your research you may have come across anything about the, the longevity of marriages or relationships where there's only one child. It seems like it's not the kind of thing that a lot of people talk about up front. I mean, before, no, before but, you know, marriage it's interesting happened. that you're asking that now because when I, when I was researching my book, there was almost nothing about this. Um, and I, I was looking at people's individual relationships to see if I could fill in some holes in the data. And then about a week ago, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, a survey came out that looked at marriages that went back about 40 years. And over the past 40 years, people with more siblings – are more likely to stay married. So the more siblings you have, the less likely you are to get divorced. Right. I think that was up to eight or something. Exactly. Yeah, I saw um, that. But, you know, so, so that is actually an interesting piece of data because I haven't seen anything like that in my, in my own tooling around. Um, and it also seemed to me to be pretty easy to explain, which was it takes into account a lot of um, only children who – were raised by, you know, stay-at-home mothers in rural areas during a time that you didn't just send your kid off to preschool, and there weren't play dates that were scheduled in such aggressive ways, and you didn't have a sort of connected life that most of us have right now with only children where, you know, they're around other kids all the time. And it turns out that school and friendships really do tend to be the great equalizer when it comes to learning how to deal with conflict in relationships and to nurture them. Um, and so I wonder if, if that study only looked at data from, say, the past 20 or 30 years, mm -hmm. if it would look yeah. quite different. 
Well, I was also curious. I mean, I, I also was thinking of that study at the same time, but that was looking at the kids themselves. What I was yeah. thinking about was, does the decision to have only one child impact the parents' relationship? Oh, is there, is there, oh, you never told me you only wanted to have one kid, or, I, you know, that, that kind of a thing where you could see easily there could be some problems because, sure, again, people, sure. you know, people well, don't want do to talk about that, it before. I think that when couples disagree on this, it's incredibly painful and it's really difficult to reconcile, and that's just the case across the board. That's if, you know, one person is wanting no kids or if one person's wanting three kids. You know, the, 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 those fertility choices when you're not on the same page are really, really tough. Um, in terms of the data, people with fewer kids tend to have higher degrees of marital happiness and marital satisfaction. And so only child marriages tend to be very strong marriages. Um, that said, I'm sure a lot of people would say, well, a lot of people are only children because <laughs> their parents split up and they didn't get to have another kid. And <laughs> while there certainly is a number um, of, of people who end up as singletons because of that situation, I, I think that when you look at the data about marital satisfaction, it really does show that people with only children are, happy, are happiest. There was a major study done in Denmark amongst 36,000 twins um, looking at family size from zero kids to, I believe, four. And the happiest people of all were people with one child. But my favorite little anecdote about that study is that the man who did that study, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, had his third child as he was coming up with these findings, and he's totally happy with three. So I really don't believe that well-being data uh, really directs anyone's individual happiness um, and that we have to take it all with a grain of salt because it's just about knowing yourself and knowing your family. Well, there's so many factors there, too. I mean, it's possible that the, the strength of only child relationships or marriages could be part, partly because they have more money because they're not spending as much on having kids. I mean, there's so many different things. You just uh, to right. pick one, but, I mean, to pick can, one seems You know, it, it does impossible. dilute your resources. There's this concept which is called resource dilution, which is exactly what it sounds like, is that every child resources dilutes your resources by another fraction. And those resources include time and energy and money. And there's a reason that I think people are feeling really stretched thin right now. So... You know, God forbid you even save some of that time or energy or money for yourself or for your own relationship. So there's a question of how much you can devote to your child, and only children and achievement are often understood in terms of those undiluted resources. But there's also, I think, a question of what you can you have left over for yourself, um, which I think is part of how parents of only children get the selfish rap. Um, but I don't know. I guess I'm okay with that. <laughs> You know, even though you were steeped in all of this research, were you kind of keeping an eye out just on an anecdotal basis and looking at things and thinking, aha, that's because that child's an only child, or, oh, if that kid was only an only child, that wouldn't have happened? You, see? you know, there was only one area in which I did this, and it's funny, I, this, this didn't really come up in the book much, and I don't even know if I've mentioned this in any of the zillions of interviews I've been doing, so I, I'm excited to, which is... 
you know, you kind of play what what my my grandfather used to call Jewish geography, which is you know, where you you always figure out, oh, that yeah. guy's Jewish. I do the same things. Like, oh, that person's obviously an only child, and I don't do it around any of the factors that you would expect in which they seem overly precocious or you know if they seem spoiled, any of those things that we tend to fit into the stereotype. The place that I get to nail it almost every time is if someone is incredibly successful in one career and then makes a radical switch to have a different skill set. So examples of this that you know I guessed off the bat were um, Brian May, who is a guitarist for Queen, who then became an astrophysicist, or Robert Redford, who was an actor who then could run Sundance. Um, Hedy Lamarr, who was an actress who then created all of this interesting technology for U.S. intelligence that laid some of the groundwork for the Internet. People who tend to have those shifts is when I tend to play my guessing game where I think, I wonder if they're an only child. And more often than not, they are. So go figure. There you go. Yeah. No, I used to do that kind of a thing because I, I mentioned before I write a lot of a lot of stuff on fatherhood. So I tend to look around for ways to prove my points. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they say, well, you know, that kid is growing up in a, in a single mother home. And obviously, if, you know, whatever, you fill in the blank and with, with things that are probably not true at all. But it just kind of, you want to have them be true. So that was I think me. it's true. Yeah. I was more generally, though, looking to disprove a stereotype that, I, you know, that you couldn't really find in the data than to, than to set out to, to make sure that it was accurate. Um, although that's. Not to say that I am not precocious and selfish at times, but I'm sure totally maladjusted in moments. How old is your daughter? She's five. Five. Okay. So she's probably not terribly aware of the whole sibling thing. I mean, oh, some of her friends so probably have babies. I mean, is she's she? so aware of it in part because it's something that I've been writing about and we've been talking about. But, you know, most of her friends have siblings, and she's incredibly aware of the fact that they have something that she doesn't. And we talk about that a lot. We talk about the pros and cons of that a lot. And it's very interesting. I mean, we've really been talking to her about this since she was probably about three, and now at five and a half, especially being immersed in the world of my book for the past several months um, since it's been in the universe um, and not just in my brain, it's been something that's very present to her and that I think like most only children, she has some ambivalence about. She really sees great benefits to it and cherishes her, our attention and all the special aspects of that relationship and also is very curious what it would be like to have a sibling. And I don't blame her. I'm curious too. Now, was this something that you and your husband had talked about before you got married? No. Um, you know, it's funny, we didn't even explicitly talk about children. He always knew that he wanted a kid, uh, my husband Justin, and it was never something that I had completely ruled out, but as life just kind of marched on and got a little bit crazier, it was something I was quite ambivalent about. And he, he just thought that it would be a good thing for us, and I trusted him, and so we went for it. And then once we got there, it felt like, okay, we are crazy about our kid and we're crazy about our lives the way they are right now, and we don't really feel a need to change it. Now, he has a sister, and he has a lovely relationship with his sister, but it isn't something that he has felt compelled to do again, um, which is good because I don't know how we would resolve that at the moment, but we do talk about it a lot. I mean, honestly, I think that I'm I'm more ambivalent about not having a second kid than he is because it feels so exotic to me, and I wonder about it more. 
Lauren Sandler is the author of One and Only, The Freedom of Having an Only Child and the Joy of Being One. Lauren, thanks very much for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. My son Casey was a bright, fearless 20-year-old with a boundless future ahead of him. But in the blink of an eye, he was gone. While out riding a skateboard, Casey fell. He was not wearing a helmet. Our whole family wishes he was. It could have saved his life. I'm Captain Kevin Raffelli of the San Mateo Police Department. Parents, encourage your kids to strap on a helmet every time they jump on a bike, scooter, or skateboard. Think of my son Casey and use your head. Put a helmet on. It could save your life. A message from the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and we're going to be talking in today's Parents at Play segment about superhero toys. And we're fortunately past the summer and all the summer blockbusters with all of the various superhero movies. But kids are still totally into superhero toys. And Samantha Fuse is going to tell us about some of the ones that she had the pleasure of reviewing. Iron Man seems like a good place to start. How about that? Absolutely. Iron Man was a big hit this summer and has been for a while. One of my son's favorite toys, not just of the summer, but as of late, has been his Marvel Iron Man 3 Avengers Initiative Arc Strike Iron Man figure from Hasbro, which is a very long name for a toy. It's really cool. It's a large toy about the size of um, the G.I. Joes of the 80s. Um, he's really cool. He has this light-up chest when you squeeze him. He, When you tilt him back, his head moves forward as if he were flying He's got uh, the blue electronic glow in his chest. Oh, yeah. Can't he's, have an Iron Man without that. He's a very cool toy. As somebody who's not a superhero aficionado, even I can appreciate uh, the coolness that is this toy. You know, i got to say, though, somebody coming from my perspective who's been involved in marketing things, I cannot imagine how the marketing department or any department let a toy with that kind of a name get out. I know. It's so long, and there are so many Iron Man toys that looking for this one specifically is nearly impossible. The name the name is longer than Texas. It's huge. <laughs> Maybe it's a Hasbro thing because they have another one, too, that you, that you looked at, the Marvel yes. Iron Man 3 Avengers Initiative Assembler's Battle Vehicle. And for again, God's sake. it was a super cool toy. It's one of his other favorite toys. And he, he almost every day, several times a day, he's got both the, the vehicle and the Arc Strike Iron Man. He absolutely loves those toys. They do not comply with each other. The, the Iron Man toy is much larger to fit in the vehicle, but they're such long names. Um, the Iron Man 3 uh, Avengers Initiative Assembler's Battle Vehicle, Hasbro again, um, it's awesome. It, you, if it's all the you know average size figurines in it, you can even cross over from other uh, superhero lines and other maybe non-superhero lines. We've had Peppa Pig in there a few times. Um, <laughs> it does a lot of cool stuff. You can switch out some of the outside gear. It's got enhanced exo armor, and it pops open and closed. If you push the right buttons, it'll pop him right out. It, it's a it's a very neat little thing, and it comes with its own Iron Man. But again, you can fit pretty much anything in there, and it's only $20. You know, so there's a bunch of people making Iron Man stuff, but I wanted to get to some of the other ones. Well, let's let's talk about the Man of Steel for a second, then we can get into the turtles. Okay. <laughs> Man of Steel has a whole bunch of, of amazing superhero toys right now. They have ones that fly through the air, ones you can fling through the air. 
really cool line, tons of figurines, comes with a bunch of add-ons, broken car pieces, awesome line. Our favorite was the Man of Steel Quick Shots Battle for Metropolis Playset by Mattel. Um, and it's a re- the, the, the movie is about a reimagining of Superman yeah. with like a, a, a dark alien kind of feel to it. Yeah, exactly. No, it's not quite the Christopher Reeve happy Superman kind of thing. Yeah, this no, is not a at all. Darker. It's kind of yeah. like emo Superman. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it plays with Mattel's Quick Shots line. You can use it either with the plastic V that comes with it that's in the shape of uh, the villain, or you can make a V with your fingers, pull back on the stretchy superhero, and fling him, boom, at General Zod. General Zod is a figurine that sits in the middle of the Quick Shots Battle for Metropolis playset. He doesn't always pop in and out as he's supposed to, but that never seems to bother my son or my husband, who plays with them <laughs> equally as much. Okay. Um, they have a great time with them together, and they really enjoy shooting the stretchy superhero all around the room, sometimes at each other, sometimes at the door. It doesn't always make it to General Zod, but hey, you know what? They're playing together, so I'm just going to take it. Does anybody get hurt by having the have Superman fly around or break windows or anything? Or is it pretty no, safe he's to never use broken a window or anything like that. Superman is only about the size of mm, my forefinger, and he's very light. He's he's. I wouldn't want him in my eye or anything like that, but he's banged around and not hurt anyone or anything. So okay. I, he's okay for indoor play as long as you aren't aiming him at your sister's head or the window. Okay, so that's a Mattel toy. My my oldest ones, you know this, my oldest ones are in their 20s. And I remember when they were very little, there were the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then they went away, and they probably went away, probably didn't go away at least as much as I thought they did. But my kids sort of outgrew them. But they keep coming back. It's like with the Power Rangers. And so there's now a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle finger kind of toy. And they aren't exactly superheroes, but they have secret identities, I guess. Tell I us about that one. superheroes. They fight bad guys. They do. That's true. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I'm a child of the 80s, and my brothers were really into Ninja Turtles. Um, I, I never got to be a turtle. I always had to be April O'Neil, so I thought that was kind of unfair, <laughs> but what are you okay. going to do? Um, <laughs> well, you could have been Splinter the Rat, I guess. That would have been worse. I wasn't allowed to be Splinter either. I was sometimes allowed to be Shredder, the bad guy, but I was usually had to be April O'Neil, and that just wasn't as much fun. <laughs> All right, so, so what was, what's going on with this teen, uh, Ninja Turtle thing? Yeah, they have a, a really large line. Again, um, everything you can imagine from van play sets. They have a whole Metropolis set um, that's what a Barbie playhouse would be to a girl. The uh, Ninja Turtle uh, set would be to a boy. It's large. They have zip lines. It, it, they have so many nice. really cool yeah. options for, for Ninja Turtles right now. Um, all from Playmates. And uh, one of the things I thought was really cool was this new line of flingers. You know how Ninja Turtles love their pizzas? Oh, yeah. Um, so they, they load the little pizzas into their backpacks, and when you slide them along the floor or a desk or the countertop that mom says you are allowed to slide them along, it will fl- it reaches into the back and fling, fling, flings the pizza at the bad guys <laughs> or oh, whatever cool. you're aiming at. They don't all have pizzas. Uh, Leonardo has sewer lids. Michelangelo has pizzas, you know, things like that. You can read more about these reviews and tons of others that we've done at our website, parentsatplay.com. For Samantha Fuse, I'm Armin Brott. 
Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.